Shalom, Chavarim. This is John Parsons with Hebrew for Christians, wishing you Shavua Tov, a good week in Yeshua, our great Messiah. Blessed be he. May this be a great week for you as you seek to know the truth of God and honor the Lord in your avodat halev, your service of the heart, as you show yourself approved before God in the study and love of his Torah, his word, and especially in his revelation in our beloved Messiah, Yeshua. Lord, I pray and I ask for great grace and strength to be poured out from heaven to your people at this time and in this hour as we endeavor to hear your voice, to seek your face, as we lift up our hearts to you, Lord, as we turn to you and we ask that you would meet with us. We draw near to you. You promised to draw near to us. I pray that that would be true in this hour as we seek your face and attune ourselves to your presence. So please help us in the name of Yeshua, our beloved one. Amen. Our Torah reading for this week is Parshat Kitisa, and it's one of the longest of the Torah. It includes the tragic account of the sin of the golden calf and Moses' passionate intercession for Israel. After a period of teshuvah or repentance for Israel's idolatry, the Lord revealed the deeper meaning of the name yud vav to Moses. That is, the 32 words that have become known in Jewish tradition as Shalosh Asrei Midot, or the 13 attributes of God's mercy. This was the Lord's own definition of his compassionate character and attributes to Moses after the breaking of the Sinai Covenant. Moses descended from the mountain after God restored the broken covenant, a date later associated with Yom Kippur. All this and more is in our Torah portion for this week. So, Let's get ready for that. In our Bibles, we find Parshat Ki Tisa, beginning with Exodus 30, verse 11, running through Exodus 34, 35. But before we begin, let's say the Hebrew blessing for studying Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech ha'olam, asher kidshanu b'mitzvotah v'tzivanu la'asok bedivrei Torah. Blessed are you, eternal one, our God, king over all, who sets us apart by his love and who wants us to be soaked up in the words of Torah. Amen. By way of introduction, let's review some things. We're in the midst of the book of Exodus, continuing the story of how the people of Israel were delivered by God's hand during the great Passover redemption, and then were led into the desert to receive the Torah from the Lord. The scripture says that at the beginning of the third month, that is Sivan 1, the people had reached Mount Sinai to set up camp. Moses then gathered the people together and asked them whether they were willing to enter into covenant with the Lord and to keep his commandments. When the people replied, Kol asher deber Adonai na all that the Lord has said we will do and obey, Moses offered sacrifices and told the people to prepare for the great revelation of God to come in three days. On Savan 6, exactly seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt, that is 49 days after the great Passover, the Lord descended upon the mountain with fire, smoke, a great shofar blast, and earthquake as the Ten Commandments were uttered, an event that we recall every year during the holiday of Shavuot, or weeks, sometimes called Pentecost in the Christian tradition. And that commemorates the great revelation of God given both at Sinai and later at Zion after the time of Yeshua's resurrection. We can read about that in Acts chapters 1 and 2. After the revelation of the Ten Commandments, God called Moses up to Sinai again, this time for 40 days and nights, to teach him the details of the commandments and how they were to be applied. When he had descended and told the people all the words of the Lord and all his rules, Mishpatim, they answered him in one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has said we will do. Moses then wrote down all the words of the Lord 
He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And then he offered further sacrifices and peace offerings before the Lord. Moses then took half of the blood and put it in basins, and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, Sefer Habrit, and read it in the hearing of the people. And again the people said, All that the Lord has spoken we will do, and we will obey. Upon hearing this affirmation, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, his sons, and seventy elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. They ate a covenant ratification meal to celebrate the agreement between Israel and the Lord. After this, they all descended the mountain, but Moses was called back up to receive the Ten Commandments written on tables of stone and to receive further revelation from God. In addition to receiving the various mishpatim and chukim, or the laws and decrees of the Lord, Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights, receiving a great vision of a special sanctuary or shrine called the Mishkan, or tabernacle, that was to represent God's presence among the people as they journeyed through the desert on their way to the promised land. God showed Moses the pattern according to which the tabernacle and its furnishings were to be made. First, the Ark of the Covenant and its cover called the Kippurit would occupy an inner chamber called the Holy of Holies. Within an adjoining chamber called the Holy Place, or Kadosh, a table, or Shulchan, would hold twelve loaves of matzah, and a seven-branched menorah, or candlestick, would illuminate the tent. God gave precise dimensions of the tent, sometimes called the Ohel, with the added instruction to separate the Holy of Holies by a veil called the Parochet. The entire tent was to have a wooden frame covered by colored fabric and the hide of rams and goats. Outside the tent, an outer court was defined that would include a copper sacrificial altar and a water basin. The outer court was to be enclosed by a fence made with fine embroidered linen hung on silver poles with hooks of silver and sockets of brass to secure it to the earth. Moses then told the Israelites to bring pure olive oil for the lamps of the menorah, which the priests were to kindle every morning in the holy place. Next, God commanded Moses to ordain Aaron and his sons as priests and describe the priestly garments they would wear while serving in the tabernacle. All the priests were to wear four garments, linen breeches, tunics, sashes, and turbans. But in addition to these, the congador, the high priest, was to wear a blue robe decorated with pomegranates and golden bells. Over this robe, an ephod, that is an apron woven of gold, purple, blue, and crimson, was to be worn, and upon the ephod was attached a breastplate inlaid with precious stones inscribed with the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Finally, the high priest would wear a golden plate engraved with the words, Holy to the Lord, upon the front of his turban. The priests were to be ordained in a special seven-day ceremony that involved washing, dressing, and anointing them with oil and mixed with blood, followed by the offering of further sacrifices and the execution of what's called semicha, or the laying on of hands, transferring or exchanging the guilt of the priest to that of the sacrificial animal. The priests were further instructed to present a special burnt offering twice a day upon the copper altar. This is the korban tamid, the daily sacrifice of the lamb, and was to be offered with matzah and wine, recalling both the great Passover redemption from Egypt and commemorating and anticipating the great Lamb of God to come, Yeshua the Messiah. After this, the Torah describes a golden altar that was to be placed within the Kodesh, or holy place. The golden altar was used to offer incense twice a day by the priests when the menorah lamps were serviced, and in addition, 
The blood of atonement was to be placed on its corners once a year during the Yom Kippur ritual that we'll learn about later. So that leads up to our Torah portion for this week, Kitisa, where God commanded that all Israelites over the age of 20 to pay a half-shekel tax to help support the service within the Mishkan. After this tax was explained, God described some additional elements that would be required for the priestly service at the sanctuary. A copper washstand used by the priests to cleanse themselves after they offer sacrifices or before they enter into the holy place. Sacred anointing oil and the incense for the golden altar in the holy place were all described. The Lord then named Bezalel, a man, quote, filled with the Spirit of God, to be the chief architect of the Mishkan. Before the construction would begin, however, the Lord reminded Moses to warn the people to be careful to observe the Sabbath day. Immediately following this admonition, God gave Moses the tablets of the Ten Commandments, which were inscribed directly by the hand of God. So Moses has got the Ten Commandments in hand, these further instructions, he's ready to come down from the mountain. But before he returned to camp, the people had talked Aaron into making an idol which he began to worship. God told Moses of their treachery and threatened to destroy the people of Israel, but Moses interceded on their behalf. As he rushed down the mountains with the tablets in his hands, he saw the people dancing about the idol and smashed the tablets in anger. Moses then destroyed the idol and led the Levites in slaying 3,000 of the ringleaders. The following day, Moses returned up the mountain and begged God to reaffirm the covenant. After a 40-day period of intercession and repentance, the Lord finally told Moses to carve a second set of tablets and to meet him at the summit of Sinai, where he would show Moses' glory and reveal to him the meaning of his name. After this dramatic encounter, God reaffirmed the covenant along with all its ritual and ethical implications. When the people finally saw Moses coming down the mountain with the second set of tablets, they rejoiced and understood they were forgiven and that the covenant had indeed been renewed. When they approached Moses, however, they drew back in fear because his face was radiant with the glory of God. Moses reassured them, however, and then reported all that the Lord had commanded while he was on the mountain. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. From that time forward, Moses wore a veil in the camp though he removed it whenever he went before the Lord for further instructions. So that's sort of uh, our context and the executive summary of our Torah reading for this week. And now I'm going to start giving more detail about this week's reading. But before I do that, I want to talk a little bit about what I call up and down the mountain, the eight aliot of Moses, because the chronology of the events surrounding Israel's experience at Sinai can be a little bit perplexing to understand, in particular, how many times Moses went up the mountain to hear from God. So let's review that briefly, and then I'll get into the Torah text. If we carefully study the Torah, we'll learn that Moses actually ascended Sinai no less than eight times, and maybe even more. In some cases, Moses functioned as a broker between the Israelites and God. At other times, he revealed specific terms of the covenant, that is, laws for people to obey. And at still other times, he received the tablets and instructions about building the tabernacle or Mishkan. In light of his multiple trips up and down the mountain, the relationship between the covenant offered to Israel, the Ten Commandments, and the purpose of the tabernacle can be a bit difficult to ascertain. So in what follows, I'm hoping to give you some idea of the chronology and significance of Moses' eight ascents up the mountain. The first ascent is actually the call of Moses in Midian. Recall that Moses first encountered the Lord at Sinai, called the Mountain of God, nearly 40 years after he had fled from Pharaoh while he was working as a shepherd for his father-in-law, Yitro, in Midian. 
According to Midrash, the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a thorn bush on Nisan 15, the very same day that Abraham once had his vision of his descendants in bondage, that in Genesis 15, 12-14. As Moses gazed in wonder, God called out to him and commanded him to remove his sandals because the place he was standing was holy. God then identified himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The Lord then said he had seen the affliction of his people in Egypt and heard their cries. I know their sufferings. I've come down to deliver them, he said. The angel then told Moses that he had chosen him to be God's emissary to Pharaoh and to take the children of Israel back to the promised land from Egypt. God assured Moses that he would be with him and that this would be the sign that I have indeed sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. That in Exodus 3 verse 12. So exactly a year after Moses first encountered God at the burning bush at Sinai, the children of Israel left Egypt, that is on the Sun 15 of the original Passover. Instead of leading Israel along a direct route to the promised land, however, God directed them south into the desert so that he could meet with Moses and the Israelites at Mount Sinai as he had promised Moses earlier. The Shekinah glory appears as a pillar of cloud by day and as a pillar of fire by night to lead them on their way. That You can read that in Exodus 13, 20 through 22. Three days after the Exodus, that is on Nisan 18, Pharaoh mobilized his army and pursued the Jews to bring them back. After two days, that is on Nisan 20, Pharaoh and his army reached the Israelites while they were encamped before Baal beside the sea. That's in Exodus 14.9. God saved the people as they miraculously crossed the sea that night and destroyed the Egyptian army later that morning. Israel entered the desert on the Sun 21, seven days after the Exodus. The bread from heaven began to fall 30 days after the Exodus on Ayar 15. And when the people arrived in the arid region of Rephidim near Sinai a week later, God gave them water from the rock. While they were encamped at Rephidim, the Amalekites attacked Israel, but they were defeated as Moses lifted up his staff toward God. Soon afterwards, Moses' father-in-law, Yitro, visited him and wisely instructed him how to establish order within the camp. The second ascent is the covenant offer. After Yitro left, the Israelites encamped before Mount Sinai exactly six weeks after the Exodus. You can read about that in Exodus 19, 1 and 2. There Moses ascended to God as God called out to him from the mountain. This was Moses' second ascent to meet God and fulfilled God's earlier promise that he would one day return with the Israelites to this very place. The Lord delegated him to ask the Israelites whether they would accept his covenant and become his treasured people. And Moses went down the mountain to deliver God's message to the elders of the people. When the elders heard the proposal, they all answered, Kol All the Lord has spoken, we will do. The third ascent is Moses as mediator. Moses then went back up the mountain to report the words of the elders to the Lord. Look at Exodus 19, 7-8. And during this ascent, the Lord explained how he would come in the thickness of the cloud to reveal that he had chosen Moses to be Israel's mediator before him. Exodus 19, 9. The Lord then told Moses to go back to the people and to prepare them to meet with God in three days. Quote, For on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in sight of all the people. Exodus 19.11 The Lord further instructed Moses to set a boundary around the mountain so that no one should cross, for whoever touches the mountain would be put to death. The fourth ascent, Shabuot, or the giving of the Ten Commandments. On the morning of the third day, that's Sivan 6, exactly seven weeks after the exodus from Egypt, 
the glory of God descended upon Sinai in a dramatic display of thunder, lightning, billowing smoke, and fire, while Moses assembled the people at the foot of the mountain. This is from Exodus 19 again, 15 through 19. The Lord called Moses to the top of the summit, but then told him to go back down again to warn the people not to cross the designated boundary. Look at Exodus 19, 20 through 25. After Moses rejoined the people at the foot of the mountain, God began uttering the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17. Upon hearing these utterances, the people drew back in terror and begged Moses to be their mediator before God. The fifth ascent is called what I'm calling the Book of the Covenant. After the people begged him to go, Moses ascended the mountain and drew near to the thick darkness where God began to explain to him the various laws of idolatry and the laws of the altar. This is from Exodus 20, 21 through 26. During this ascent, God gave Moses various laws, or mishpatim, about civil life for the Israelites as well. After receiving the various laws for the people, God told Moses to bring Aaron, his sons, and the 70 elders up to the mountain to ratify the terms of the covenant. This is in Exodus 21, 1 through 24, 2. Moses then descended Sinai and told the elders everything that the Lord had said. The people then replied in unison, Kol hadaver asher deber Adonai nase, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses then wrote down the rules into a separate scroll called Sefer HaBrit, the Book of the Covenant, and built an altar at the foot of Mount Sinai with twelve pillars, as I mentioned before. He offered burnt offerings, olah, and peace offerings, shalomim. And Moses took the sacrificial blood from these offerings, threw half on the altar and half on the people, and they ratified the covenant with the words, Kol asher deber Adonai nasev the Lord has said we will do and we will obey. That's Exodus 24, verse 7. The sixth ascent. This is the ratification meal. Immediately following the ratification ceremony, Moses took Aaron and his sons, Nadab and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel up to Sinai to eat a covenant ratification meal between the people of Israel and the Lord. The elders of Israel then directly beheld the glory of the God of Israel, under whose feet was a pavement of sapphires like the very heaven for clearness. Exodus 24, 9 through 11. The seventh ascent the tablets, and the tabernacle. After returning from the mountain with the elders, the Lord commanded Moses to once again go back up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone and scribe with the Ten Commandments. This is Exodus 24:12. Moses then ascended the mountain, which was still covered by a shining cloud of fire. On the seventh day there, during the seventh, the seventh ascent, Moses heard the voice of the Lord calling to him from the midst of the cloud and entered into the midst of the presence of the Lord. He remained on the mountain for a total of 40 days and 40 nights, while the Israelites waited for him at the camp down below. This is from Exodus 24:15 through 18. During this 40-day period, the sin of the golden calf occurred, and Moses came down the mountain, shattered the original tablets of the Ten Commandments, and went into a period of mourning and teshuvah for the people. The Eighth Ascent then concerns the renewal of the covenant. In the aftermath of this sin, Moses despaired of the people ever being able to find favor in God's eyes again. After being told that Israel should leave Sinai without him, look at Exodus 33, verse 3, Moses began to lose hope. In a state of grief, he moved his tent away from the camp where the Shekinah presence began to hover. Moses realized he was at an utter impasse. Would God continue his redemptive plan for Israel, or was this the end of the great dream? Therefore we read how Moses poignantly appealed to God. He said, If I found favor or grace in your eyes, let me know your ways, that I may know you and continue in your favor. This is Exodus 33:13. God responded by reassuring Moses that his presence would be with him, 
and that he would enter his rest. But Moses protested, unless you go in the lead, don't let us leave this place. Or how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? So, the eighth ascent occurred after the period of mourning in Teshuvah, after the sin of the golden calf, when Moses was called back up to the mountain to hear the Lord declare the meaning of his name, the Lord, or yud he and to receive the second set of tablets. And so you can see now, in just this very brief survey, how Moses went up and down the mountain several times in the in the Torah. And typically, though, we tend to think of it as just once or twice that he went up, once to get the first set of tablets and the second time to get the second set. But it's obviously a lot more complicated than that. In fact, there are three different times in which Moses ascended the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. The first being when he received the first set of tablets that were destroyed. The second being during the summer, 40 days and 40 nights, when he ascended again to make intercession on behalf of Israel. And the third being from Elul 1 until Yom Kippur, 40 days and nights, which is the period of Teshuvah, culminating in the giving of the second set of tablets that was later enshrined during the Yom Kippur Avodah. So I mention all that just by way of introduction again to this Torah portion as we consider the sin of the golden calf and Moses' descent and then his reascent up to the mountain to make intercession for Israel. And finally, the restoration of the covenant given at the end of the Torah portion when Moses went up yet again, 40 days and 40 nights to receive the second set of tablets and heard the name yud vav as the compassionate healer of Israel. Moses' successful intercession touched God's heart, causing him to change from a mode of strict judgment, midat hadin, to one of mercy and forgiveness, midat harachamim. This was the gospel moment at Sinai. Upon hearing God's words of comfort, Moses was so overcome that he exclaimed, Oh, let me behold your glory, your presence, Exodus thirty-three eighteen. Whereupon God answered, I will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you the name Lord, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. This is from Exodus thirty-three nineteen. You can also see that in Romans nine fifteen. The Lord then instructed Moses to carve a new set of tablets and to meet him again at a place, Hamakom, on top of Mount Sinai, where he would descend in the cloud to declare his name. Note that Moses would receive the revelation of the name when he stood upon the rock, Exodus thirty-three twenty-one. This dramatic experience of revelation was later called Midot HaRachamim, or the revelation of the attributes of God's mercy, and was considered a divine addendum to the original covenant. Jewish tradition later incorporated the recitation of Midot HaRachamim during the observance of Yom Kippur and at other special times in their liturgy. It's wonderful to see how this revelation prefigures a new covenant that was given to Israel. Just as the first set of tablets, based as they were on the justice and holiness of God, were broken, so a second set was given based on the midot or attributes of the Lord's mercy and grace. Indeed, Yeshua was broken on behalf of the law, but was raised again so that all who trust in him can truly understand that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and truth. That's from Exodus 34, 6. Again, it can be argued that the deeper revelation of the name yud heh vav was a gospel moment for Israel. The episode of the golden calf revealed that the Jews were unable to keep the law, even though they personally experienced the power of God's deliverance from Egypt and his ongoing care on the way to Sinai. Despite the pledge of the Israelites, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and be obedient, 
the sin of the golden calf revealed that something more was needed, and therefore the law by itself was insufficient to circumcise the inner heart of the person. The intercession of Moses on behalf of Israel revealed the heart of the new covenant, Brit Hadashah, the deeper revelation of God's character of mercy and grace. Apart from God's gracious love and compassion, the law by itself rendered only the righteous sentence of death. As the revelation of the name discloses, the Lord is Rav Chesed Ve'emet, abundant in kindness and faithful love. This is demonstrated in the sacrifice of Yeshua for our sins. John 3, 16, 17, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the Torah, the law, might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Ruach, the Spirit. This is from Romans 8, 3 and 4. The great story of the giving of the Torah has a happy ending, of course. Moses finally was able to enter the promised land and stood again with the Lord in the cloud covering the mountain, though this was the mountain of Zion rather than Sinai. Look at Matthew 17, 1 through 5, and you see Moses in the promised land. This is yet another ascent of Moses. Because of the Avadah, the finished work and intercession of Yeshua, now we can all find favor in God's eyes once again. Mercy and truth meet at the cross. In other words, God is both just and the justifier of the ungodly who put their trust in Yeshua as their Torah righteousness. The Lamb of God, we impute our sin by leaning into him, by placing our hands on him like a sin offering, chatat, and he then exchanges his righteousness on our behalf in, in response to our faith in him. And that miracle of exchange makes us right with God. That's the deeper message of the Day of Atonement, by the way, which enshrined the giving of the second set of tablets and the restoration of Israel by the mercy of God. The mercy of God, represented by the blood of sacrifice, was placed over the broken tablets, and that was sprinkled on the kaporet in which the name of the Lord, Yeshua, was mentioned in the Holy of Holies, making intercession on our behalf. And that's a figure of the cross as well. So let's begin reading our Torah portion together. I'm on Exodus 30, verse 11, the start of our Torah reading. It begins this way. The Lord said to Moses, when you take, there's the Hebrew word is ki when you take the census of the people of Israel, literally lift the heads of the people, it says in the Hebrew text, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among you when you number them. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this, Half a shekel, according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Now, the shekel is defined as 20 geras, or half a gram. So a half shekel then would be about 6 grams. Half shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census, from 20 years old and upward, shall give the Lord's offering. The rich shall not give more, and the poor shall not give less than the half shekel. It's called machatzit ha-shekel. When you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. You shall take the atonement money, kesef ha-kippurim, from the people of Israel and give it for the service of the tent of meeting, ohel moed, that it may bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for your lives. So the Lord here tells Moses to collect this half-shekel coin from each male, 20 years and older, and then to count the coins to obtain a census so there would be no plague among them when they were numbered. According to Midrash, the reason for this is that as each Jew is being counted, Satan takes note 
and accuses them before the Lord as a transgressor calling for the punishment of his sins. Another idea is that being counted by God was to be connected with the idea of atonement or the need to be redeemed from sin or cleansed from sin, not being deserved to be numbered among God's people, showing humility and so on, so that there be no plague. And that was to guard against the sin of presumption or pride. And that was probably what was behind David's numbering that resulted in judgment, as we read about in Second Samuel. It may also be that the idea of a census was to muster an army, and the taxes meant to give an atonement or his soul to the Lord, namely for shedding blood during battle. At any rate, this collected money was called Kesef HaKippurim, atonement money. You hear the word Yom Kippur here, right? And it was melted down to create the Adanim, or the sockets used to hold the pillars of the Mishkan, or tabernacle, in place. Later, after the temple was created, the half-shekel coin was used to purchase korbanot or animal sacrifices for the community of Israel. At any rate, each person over the age of 20 was required to give a half-shekel for atonement before the Lord to be accounted as a beneficiary of God's redemptive work. And so that, homiletically, you can see the need for truma there, for contribution, sustaining the work of God. If there's ministries you believe in that are really promoting the truth of the gospel and the message of truth of Torah, you should support those because those ministries need your help. I know Hebrew for Christians does, and I'm not usually making appeals for money on the site, thank God. But we do have a need, and we rely on our people to help sustain us as we proclaim the truth of Yeshua and his salvation. Continuing our reading, the Lord then said to Moses, You shall also make a basin of bronze, kior nechoshet, with its stand of bronze for washing, lerachatzah. You shall put it between the tent of meeting, that's the Mishkan tent, and the altar. Now the word altar there is referring to the copper altar of sacrifice, the first thing you see when you enter into the compound of the Mishkan. And you shall put water in it, and with which Aaron and his son shall wash their hands and feet. When they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near to the altar to minister to burn food, offering that is an offering of fire to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and their feet, so that they may not die. It shall be a statue forever to them, even to him and to his offspring throughout their generations. So here we read that the Lord instructs Moses to make the kior nechoshet. This is the bronze or copper wash basin used by the priests during their abodah or service in the Mishkan. The kior stood near the Mizbeach HaOlah, that's a sacrifice altar, in the courtyard. And the priests would wash their hands and feet before they ascended the altar to perform a sacrifice or when they came down from the altar to go back into the holy place. Homiletically, this recalls the early Passover Seder that Yeshua held with his disciples when he, that is, Yeshua washed the disciples' feet in John's Gospel 13, 1-18. Peter's desire for Yeshua to wash his entire body and not just his feet harkens back to the role of the bronze wash basin in the Mishkan, in which the priests were required to only wash their hands and feet, the rest of their bodies being covered by the righteousness that their robes of office conferred to them. On another level, the water represents the washing of the word, whereby our hands and feet are sanctified to serve the Lord. And so symbolically, it represents purity of will and heart to proceed in God's Torah and guidance in your life. The Torah portion continues to describe the anointing oil that was used at the Mishkan or tabernacle. I'm in Exodus 33, verse 22. The Lord said to Moses, Take the finest spices, besamim, of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of sweet-smelling cinnamon, 
half as much, that is 250, and 250 of spice cane, and 500 of cassia, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, and a gallon of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer. It shall be a holy anointing oil, Shem and Mishkat Kodesh. With it you shall anoint the tent of meeting, Ohel Moed, and the ark of the testimony, Aron Hadut, and the table, Shulchan, and its utensils, and the menorah, and its utensils, and the altar of incense, Mizbeach HaKetorin, and the altar burnt offering, Mizbeach HaOlah, with all its utensils, and the basin, Kior, and its stand. You shall consecrate them, that they may be most holy, Kodesh Kodeshim. Whatever touches them will be holy. You shall anoint Mashach, Aaron, and his sons, and consecrate them, that they may serve me as priests, Kohanim. And you shall say to the people of Israel, This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person, and you shall make no other like it in composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds any like it, or whoever puts any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. Next, the Torah describes the Ketorit recipe. The Lord said to Moses, Take for yourself spices, stachate and anacha and galbanum, and mix these with pure frankincense in an equal part each, and make an incense, or Ketorit, blended as by the perfumer, seasoned with salt, malach, pure and holy. You shall beat some of it very small and put part of it before the testimony in the tent of meeting where I shall meet with you. That is right before the ark of the covenant on the other side of the parochet, in the holy place. It shall be most holy for you. And the incense that you shall make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be holy for you to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. So the anointing oil, or Shemen Hamishcha, was a special oil used to consecrate all the objects of the Mishkan, and was also applied to the heads of the priests. A Midrash says that a bottle of Shemen Hamishcha Moses made miraculously lasted for 750 years, and that just before the destruction of the temple, King Josiah hid the bottle. One day the Messiah will restore this hidden bottle back to the children of Israel in the Millennial Kingdom. And the Lord also instructed Moses to make the ketorit, or incense used for the altar of incense in the holy place. The correct blend of the spices and condiments used in making this incense was a very carefully guarded secret, only known to the compounders of the incense, so that it wouldn't be used in avodah, zarah, or worship of foreign gods or idolatry. The, the rabbis mentioned in the Talmud that it was such a carefully guarded secret that no one knows how to make this today. Both the Shemin Hamishcha and the Ketorit, however, will be restored in the Millennial Kingdom of Messiah. Our Torah portion continues with further details about how the actual Mishkan or Tabernacle was to be constructed. Beginning with chapter 31, verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Betzalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for settings, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Oliav, the son of Ahasmach, of the tribe of Dan. And I have given to him all special ability, so that they may make all that I have commanded you. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. So here we read in the Torah that 
the Lord told Moses that he had chosen Betzalel to be the chief architect or builder of the Mishkan. Now, Betzalel was the grandson of Hur of the tribe of Judah, an ancestor of King David, who, according to Josephus in the Antiquities 3.2, was the husband of Moses' sister Miriam. Hur was chosen to go with Moses and Aaron to the top of the mountain during Israel's first great war against Amalek. You can read about that in Exodus 17.8-13. Now, Betzalel is a type of Messiah, a man called by name from Judah, who is filled with the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, and whose name means in the shadow of God. Now, Midrash says that Moses was so impressed with his abilities that he is reported to have said, Betzel el Hayita, you were indeed in God's shadow, for you have the ability to create what the Holy One, blessed be he, has shown me. In other words, when Moses was shown the pattern for the Mishkan and all its furnishings on Sinai, he was astonished that Betzalel, who was only a young man, could so perfectly recreate the vision. Therefore, Moses said that he must have been, quote, in the shadow of God when he was being given the revelation from the Lord. And Betzalel was like Yeshua in that he was from the kingly tribe of Judah. He was, among other things, a young carpenter. He was unusually filled with the Spirit of God. His father's name, Uri, means my light. Now, Betzalel's chief assistant was Aholiab, whose name means the father's tent. You hear the word Ohel in there, and Av. Uliab was of the tribe of Dan, symbolizing Torah, but it was he rather than Moses who actually built the Mishkan, which was the archetypal pattern for the temple or the house of God. See 1 Peter 2.5. As it's written in Hebrews 3, chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, Therefore, my holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Yeshua, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Yeshua has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken of later, but Messiah is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are of his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Betzalel was clearly a picture of Yeshua, our Messiah, for the reasons I've already stated. And furthermore, the Torah states that God endowed Betzalel with the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, with wisdom, chokhmah, understanding, tevunah, and knowledge, da'ad. The same attributes used to describe God as the creator of the universe. Look at Exodus 35-31, Proverbs 3-19-20, and so on. As a young man chosen by God himself, Betzalel came and healed the wound that was caused by the sin of the golden calf, it says in Shemot Rabbah. In addition to being the first great artist of God mentioned in the Torah, the Talmud states that Betzalel knew how to join together the letters with which heaven and earth were created. Indeed, as one who knew how to fashion the Ark of the Covenant, where the blood would be presented for our atonement, he clearly foreshadowed Yeshua, our great Messiah. For more on how Betzalel was a picture of Yeshua the Messiah. Please see the Hebrew for Christians website. Continuing our Torah reading, I'm in Exodus 31, beginning with verse 12. And the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. 
Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh is a Sabbath of solemn rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Therefore the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. Brit Olam. It is a sign forever, Otolam, between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, Shnei Luchot Hadut, tablets of stone, Luchot Evan, written with the finger of God, Betzba Elohim. So here we have the Lord repeating the commandment regarding the sanctity of the Sabbath day. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. Before commenting further on this passage, I want to point out just how remarkable it is that God would repeat and elaborate the fourth commandment just before he was about to hand the two tablets to Moses. After all, God could have reviewed each of the Ten Commandments with Moses at that time, or in light of the subsequent narrative concerning the dreadful sin of the golden calf, God could have repeated the warning against idolatry. But why did he stress the importance of observing Sabbath at this critical moment? Well, as this passage makes clear, the Sabbath was intended to commemorate God as our personal creator, king, and judge. It's a sign that God has set us apart as his own treasured people. In Moses' restatement of the Torah given later, we're further commanded to remember the Sabbath day in light of God's redemption. It's written, Remember that you were slaves in Egypt, and that the Lord brought you out of there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore the Lord your God has commanded you to observe the Sabbath day. That's Deuteronomy 5.15. In other words, Sabbath is a weekly reminder that the Lord is both our Creator and our Redeemer. Some commentators believe that the commandment to guard Sabbath is placed at this point in the narrative in light of the work that would be required to make the tabernacle or Mishkan. Even though its construction was sanctified work, the workmen must not overlook the sacred institution of the Sabbath, since that would confuse the means with the end of the sanctuary itself. Indeed, the sages regard the work Shabbat, rest, as a technical term, understood to be the opposite of the word malacha, which is work. So what is work then, they asked, and they identified 39 creative activities that were required for the creation, setup, and maintenance of the Mishkan and its furnishings. These 39 activities are called Avot Malacha, the fathers of work, and are regarded as foundational categories for understanding other types of work which are similar and derived from them. The Sabbath is called Brit Olam, an everlasting covenant. Like the sign of creation itself, the sign of the rainbow in Genesis 9.16, the act of ritual circumcision in Genesis 17, and the promises made to the patriarchs, for example, Psalm 105, 8 and 10. The promises given to King David, 2 Samuel 23.5 and Isaiah 55.3, and the promises that one day God would restore the Jewish people by renewing the covenant with them, Jeremiah 32.37-40. The fact that the prophet Ezekiel lamented that Israel did not honor the sign of the covenant and therefore experienced God's wrath did not imply that the Lord had abandoned the Jewish people, of course, especially since the prophet later speaks of the renewed covenant with the Jewish people in the latter days. Look at Ezekiel 37.26, for example. The Sabbath's a sign or an identifying mark of a Jew. It's a statement of faith, a visible practice of 
bitachon, it honors the Lord as both our creator and redeemer. The penalty for desecrating the Sabbath was severe, namely death itself. The sages discussed this at some length, wondering how the death penalty is to be understood in light of the law that saving a life, for example, pikuah nefesh, must take precedence over the laws of Sabbath. Doesn't pikuah nefesh imply that no Jew should ever be put to death for the sake of the Sabbath? The sages answer by noting the qualification given in the text itself. For whoever does any work on it shall be cut off, karat, from his people. This cutting off means being severed from his or her roots, and therefore the profane person has effectively become dead to the things of the spirit. Incidentally, whatever else your theology of Sabbath might imply, one thing's clear. The Sabbath day, Yom HaShabbat, begins Friday at sundown and lasts until after sundown on Saturday during Havdalah. The idea that Sunday replaces the Sabbath in the divine calendar is therefore just not true. There's no evidence whatsoever that Yeshua called for his followers to rest on a different day of the week other than the Sabbath. Indeed, it's unthinkable that the King of the Jews, the Lord of glory who spoke from the midst of the fire at Sinai to Moses, would repeal this commandment or otherwise contradict himself, especially since the Sabbath foreshadowed his deeper work of salvation in our lives. On the contrary, Yeshua no more repealed the fourth commandment in light of the cross than he repealed the commandment against adultery, Matthew 5.28, or murder, 1 John 3.15. Essentially, it needs to be remembered that the Sabbath day is primarily set apart time for Kedushah, holiness, Menucha, rest, and Oneg, joy. And that's the point. The quarrel Yeshua had with the Pharisees of his day concerned the addition of what are called Gezerot, or fences, that obscured the deeper meaning of rest as a means of healing in life. Jesus said Sabbath was made for man and not man for Sabbath, marked 227, which means it's a gift of God to us, a time of rest and reflection, a joyful time set apart from the busy week when we can focus on what's really important in our lives. Yeshua's acts of healing on the Sabbath were intended to teach that there's no rightful law against meeting the needs of others before fulfilling our religious obligations. This is a very involved topic, and I don't really have time to go through it all here. Please look for the Hebrew for Christians article, The Sign of the Sabbath, Further Thoughts on Parshat Kitisa on the Hebrew for Christians website. I have a downloadable PDF that you can print out and look at, or you can just read it online. But in either case, there's a lot of information about the Sabbath day and what it means for us as believers in Messiah. The narrative then shifts to the account of Moses receiving the two luchot, or tablets, with the Ten Commandments inscribed upon them. According to Jewish Midrash, the tablets of stone were made of blue sapphire as a symbol of the heavens and of God's throne, written by the finger of God. The Hebrew letters were said to be bored fully through the stone, which was a miracle since the inner part of some of the Hebrew letters, such as Samech and the final Mem, floated in place. Moreover, even though the letters were bored fully through the stone, both sides appeared normally, that is, the back of the tablet looked identical to the front as it says in Shabbos 104a in the Talmud. For more information about the Midrashim and also the account of the Ten Commandments, please see the Hebrew for Christians website where I have a lot of information about this. The whole sapphire blue tablets and how they were miraculously formed is an amazing study, and I encourage you to take a look at that. Okay, and now we come to the incident of the golden calf an episode of Torah that's difficult to read and also somewhat difficult to understand. I'm in chapter 32 of this Torah portion, chapter 32 of Exodus. 
When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold which were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf, Egel Mesecha. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord, Chag Ladonai. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to laugh and play. Now the Lord then said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf, and have worshipped it, and sacrificed to it, and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people, Am Kesheorif. Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And then the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of, bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and back they were written, the tablets were the work of God, Maseh, Elohim, and the writing was the writing of God, Mechtav, Elohim, engraved on tablets. When Joshua, or Joshua, who was with Moses on the mountain, heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There's a noise of war in the camp. But Moses said, It's not the sound of shouting for victory, or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. So as he rushed down the mountain with the tablets in hand, Moses saw the people dancing around the idol. The tablets then became heavy and were smashed to the ground. Moses then destroyed the molten calf and led the Levites, the only tribe who had not contributed gold to the idol's creation, in slaying 3,000 of the people involved in this thing. And the next day he returned to God and said, If you do not forgive them, blot me out from the book you've written. Despite Moses' intercession, based on Zechut Avot, or the merit of the patriarchs, God sent a plague on the people. Returning to our text, And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we don't know what's become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. 
And when Moses saw that the people were running wild, for Aaron had let them run wild to shame them, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Me, Ladonai, come to me, alike. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put, the, put your sword on your side, each one of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about three thousand men of the people fell. Then Moses said, Today you have been ordained in the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin. Now I will go up to the Lord, and perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Incidentally, at this time the sages say Moses reascended Sinai to intercede once again for forty days and forty nights for Israel's forgiveness. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now please forgive their sin. But if not, please blot me out of your book that you've written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot him out of my book. But now go lead the people to a place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angels shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. The Lord then further said to Moses, Depart, go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt, to the land which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, by saying, To your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, Eretz Zavat Chalavu Devash. But I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are Amkashe Orof, a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous message, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments, that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Chorov onward. Our Torah portion now continues. This is the third period of intercession for the people for the sin of their idolatry by Moses. And I'm in 33 verse 7. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp. And he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. Whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up, and each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone to the tent. When Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, they would rise up and worship each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses, Panim el Panim, face to face, as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Yehoshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. So in effect, Moses ostracized himself from the people of Israel, and there made intercession before the Lord in solitude, away from the camp, seeking God's face, looking to God for direction, and wondering what would happen to them now. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you'll send with me. He's referring here to the angel. Yet you have said, I know you by name, and you have also found favor in my sight. 
Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Here Moses makes a somewhat circular appeal, saying, Since I found favor in your eyes, show me your ways, in order that I might continue to have favor in your eyes. Moses continued, Consider, too, that this nation is your people. And the Lord then said, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And Moses then said to him, If your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? So here Moses is making a passionate appeal to God not to abandon his people, appealing to God's heart of compassion, asking him to keep continuing with the people, to persevere with the people. When he said, is it not your going with us, so that we're distinct, we and your people, that that is a call for God to remain as their father in this circumstance. Furthermore, Moses appeals to God's reputation his role as the heavenly father of the Jewish people, the deliverer, and implies that it is fitting with God's care for his people, his compassion, that he would embrace his people and forgive them and bring them through this terrible ordeal. Continuing the narrative, And the Lord said to Moses, This very thing that you have spoken I will do, for you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. So this was a turning point of Moses' passionate appeal. He then said, Please show me your glory. And the Lord said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. That's Adonai or yud heh And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But he said, You cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, Behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of a rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I pass by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. Now let me interject something here. The phrase panim el panim, face to face, in reference to Moses speaking with the Lord as a man speaks to his friend, is an idiom, obviously. It, it does not literally mean face to face, because in this very passage of scripture that we're reading, the Lord tells Moses that no one can see his face and live, and therefore we need to understand this somewhat differently. Okay, we're getting closer to the climax of this week's Torah portion, which is the revelation of the name yud vav Now, just by way of backstory, keep in mind that Moses had been given the great name of the Lord back in Exodus chapter 3 when he was at the burning bush and asked God his name, and God said, Ehye, Asher, Ehye, I will be what I will be, or I am what I am. And then God identified that name, Ehye, Asher, Ehye, or just simply Ehye, with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as his name forever. And so he was commissioned to go forth to the elders of Israel who were in Egypt with the message, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, Ehye, the one who is and is to come, has sent me. Now this idea of Ehye is wordplay on the Hebrew verb Hayah, meaning to be. I will be who I will be. It's meaning connected with the idea of 
necessary being. God stands outside of time. He is before all things. He is the center of all things, and he is the end of all things. For more information on this topic, please see the Hebrew for Christians website and the Parshat Shemot discussion on the Hebrew name El Shaddai and the great name of God. So beginning with Exodus chapter 34, The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, and I will write on the tablets the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Be ready by the morning, and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai, and present yourself there to me on top of the mountain. No one shall come up with you, and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up to Sinai, as the Lord had commanded him, and took in his hand the two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God of mercy and grace, slow to anger and abounding in love and truth, keeping love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. As I mentioned earlier, these 32 words in Exodus 34, 6, and 7 have become known in Jewish tradition as Shalosh Esrei Midot, the 13 attributes of God's mercy. The Lord described himself as a God who is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love, that's chesed, and truth or faithfulness, that's emet, who guards love and carries, no say, carries away iniquity, avon, transgression, that's pesha, and sin, that's chet, but who will not clear the guilty. In other words, because the Lord is holy and righteous, he cannot leave the guilty unpunished. This follows from the fact that God cannot lie, and since God necessarily must be true to his nature, he cannot negate the truth or violate his justice. The Lord can't sweep sin under the rug or just pretend that it's not there. That's not the nature of love. Love requires justice, and therefore the love of God does not negate his righteousness or justice. The cross is central to the idea of true love, in other words. Only at the cross does the truth of our condition meet with the divine kiss of God's grace. And that's Psalm 85, verse 10. Please see the Hebrew for Christians website for more information about the 13 attributes of God's mercy. But returning to our Torah portion, after Moses heard the name of the Lord being declared, he quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And then he said, If I have now found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us, for we are stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us for your inheritance." The Lord then said, Behold, I am making a covenant. Before all your people I will do marvels such as has not been created in all the earth or in any nation. And all the people among whom you are shall see the work of the Lord, for it is an awesome thing that I will do. Now it might be asked in this connection, what what does this statement refer to? And it refers to, I believe, laying down afresh the terms of the covenant and going with the people to drive out the nations before them working miracles on their behalf, enlarging their borders, preventing their enemies from coming into the land, especially during the festival seasons, and so on. Here's marvels such as not have been done in all the earth, for example, the drying up of the Jordan, the falling of the walls of Jericho, the destruction of the army of the five kings by the hailstones, 
and similar types of things. So where the Lord says, Before all your people I will do marvels such as not have been created in all the earth or in any nation, and all the people among you shall see the work of the Lord, for it's an awesome thing that I will do. This does refer prophetically to the inheritance, the coming into the land, taking possession, and the miracles under Yehoshua. Now our Torah portion continues, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Take care, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall not make for yourself any gods of cast metal, no graven images. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month of Aviv. In the month of Aviv you came out of Egypt. All that is opening the womb is mine, all your male livestock, the firstborn of cows and sheep, the firstborn of a donkey, you shall redeem with the lamb, and so on. Six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest. In plowing time and in the harvest you shall rest. You shall observe the Feast of Weeks, this is Sukkot, the first fruits of the wheat harvest, and the Feast of Ingathering at the year's end. Three times in the year shall all males appear before the Lord, this is Shalosh Regalim, for I will cast out nations before you in the larger borders. No one shall cover your land when you go up and appear before the Lord your God three times a year. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the sacrifice of the feast of Passover, Pesach, remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring to the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And the Lord said to Moses, Write these words, for in accordance with these words I have made a covenant with you and with Israel. So he was there with the Lord forty days and forty nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water, and he wrote the tablets on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. So there is yet another forty days and forty nights in which Moses is this time getting the covenant restored to Israel, and these further prophecies of the conquest of the land given to Israel, and most radically, I believe, the reestablishment of God's love prefigured in the name yud heh vav -Heh, which, of course, is the name for Yeshua in the New Covenant. Because as the tablets were broken, and the people were in brokenness, and it seemed as if there was no place to go for Moses, and it looked like the dream was over, God stepped in and revealed himself as the compassionate Savior and Healer the Deliverer, the one who would overcome the verdict of the law by means of his grace, a greater grace. And that's the deeper meaning of the name yud heh vav -Heh that's carried over into the New Covenant, God our Savior, the Faithful One, the Compassionate, Loving Savior. Now that name yud heh vav -Heh, first appears in the Torah referring to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 where the Lord God breathed into Adam the breath of life, Nishmat Chaim. And that is how it all begins with that name. And it's always that name, God breathing into us the breath of life and giving us his love and nurturing us through, helping us get through and to breathe in his spirit and to take in his life. Rashi wrote concerning these events. He said, on the 6th of Sivan, Moses went up onto the mountain. On the 17th of Tammuz, the tablets were broken. That's the first 40 days now. On the 18th of Tammuz, he burned the golden calf and judged the transgressors. On the 19th, he went up 40 days and pleaded for mercy. That's the second 40 days. 
On the first of Elul, he went up to receive the second tablets and was there for 40 days. Now this is the third 40 days. And on the tenth of Tishri, God restored his goodwill with the Jewish people and gladly and wholeheartedly told Moses, I have forgiven as you have asked and gave him the second tablets. This traditional understanding of the timing of these events explains why the festival of Shavuot or Pentecost is celebrated as Zaman Matan Tortenu, the time of commemorating the giving of the Torah. It also explains why the 17th of Tammuz is observed as a time of national tragedy for Israel. It further explains why the month of Elul is a time of selichot, or turning for forgiveness to God. And it, of course, remembers the 10th of Tishri as the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, commemorating God's forgiveness of the people. The blood placed over the broken tablets, the first set, and everything being restored by the grace of God. Our Torah portion concludes with Moses coming down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of testimony in his hand, and he didn't know that the skin on his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and they saw that his face was shining, and they were afraid to come near to him. But Moses called to them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all the people of Israel did come near, and he commanded them all what the Lord had spoken with him at Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. I'm reading Exodus 34:34. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with the Lord again. So our Torah portion this week, Kitisa, ends with a description of Moses' face alight with the Shekinah glory of the Lord, which remained on his face until the day of his death. From henceforth, Moses would veil his face except when he would speak to the nation as God's mediator. It's enlightening to realize how this revelation prefigures the new covenant that was given to Israel and Yeshua, just as that first set of tablets, based as they were on the justice and holiness of God, were broken. So a second set was given based on the attributes of God's love and mercy and grace. Indeed, Yeshua was broken on behalf of the law, but raised again, so that all who trust in him can truly understand that God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and truth. It can be argued that the second revelation of the name yud heh was a gospel moment for the people of Israel. The episode of the golden calf revealed to the Jews that they were unable to keep the law, even though they personally experienced God's great power and deliverance from Egypt and his ongoing care on the way to Sinai. Despite the judgments brought upon Egypt, despite the overthrow of Pharaoh and his armies in the sea, despite the bitter waters made sweet, despite the manna from heaven, despite the miraculous well of Miriam, despite the awesome revelation of Sinai, and despite the pledge of the Israelites, Kol Asher Deber Adonai Naseh Vanishma, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient, the sin of the golden calf revealed that something more was needed. The law was insufficient to change the inner heart of man. The poignant intercession of Moses, his passion experience, was a picture of Yeshua that ultimately revealed the heart of the new covenant, Brit Chadashah, the revelation of the Lord's attributes of mercy and grace. For more about the shining face of the believer 
in the Messiah Yeshua. See the article entitled Paul's Midrash of the Veil on the Hebrew for Christians website. Well, I realize this has been a long pull for those of you that have been listening. And part of that is that this is, as I mentioned at the outset, the longest of the 54 Torah portions. And therefore, it's understandable that we had a lot of text to get through. And um, I went as quickly as I could without making it trivial. And I hope you found it helpful. Now, there's uh, free downloads on the Hebrew for Christians website, including a Shabbat table talk, which includes discussion questions and further textual information about this Torah portion that you might find interesting. It's free, so please help yourself, and I hope you find it helpful. Also, see the related articles on the Hebrew for Christians website on this Torah portion, and indeed all the Torah portions that I think you will find to be helpful too, especially as you understand Yeshua and how the red letters of the New Testament should also be recognized in the Old Testament as we read the words of the Lord. The Lord is one. We don't believe in three gods. We believe in one God. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. That word Echad meaning oneness, unity in plurality the sum total of all that is real and abiding and true in the conscious expression of the Holy One, the Holy One of Israel, blessed be He. The Lord Yeshua, the Messiah, is the same yesterday and today and forever, and He was the voice speaking out of the fire at Sinai, just as He was the voice speaking in the upper room to His disciples, and the voice that cried out at the cross for our salvation, blessed be He forever. And let me end with the great Hebrew blessing. Yevarechacha Hashem Yavishmarecha, Yair Adonai Panave Lecha Vikuneka, Isa Adonai Panave Lecha Beesem Lecha Shalom. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his shalom, his healing love. Hashem Yeshua Meshichenu Huhadon. In the name of Jesus our Messiah, he is the Lord. Shavuatov, Chodeshtov. Every blessing in Messiah, be it on you, by faith, receive it now. Amen. את נשמתי מודה אני על בגד שנחת על גופי שלא יהיה לי כה אתה שומר עליי Please note that this lovely music comes from Omer Adam and this is a song called Mode Ani you can find them on amazon.com and also please visit us at hebrewforchristians.com for more about the Jewish roots of the faith the Jewish holiday cycle, and, of course, learning Hebrew. Shalom, shalom, Kavarim.